John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. You'll notice in your bulletin this morning that there's no title for this sermon. Sermon titles are probably more difficult to come up with week after week than maybe you might realize. Uh, They can be a tad bit frustrating to come up with something succinct that summarizes, is catchy, and yet isn't mundane or trite. Especially when human nature is on display, doing what it does, what only it is capable of doing, repeating a cycle of depravity. I mean, how many times could you title a sermon like the Pharisees' response this morning? If I was going to call the sermon anything this morning, I would simply entitle the sermon, Deja Vu. A French word which means already dreamed. We've we've been here. We know this story, don't we? We've seen this movie a, a million times play out already in the, the first seven and a half chapters of John's gospel. The text before us this morning probably sounds familiar to you. You're probably thinking, this sounds almost verbatim like chapter 5. You'd be right. Because it's just the same old, same old with these Pharisees, with these religious yet unbelieving people. And brothers and sisters, therein is the warning. You can be religious to the hilt. You can have the strictest protocols. You can have the most fastidious methodologies in the world and not know Jesus nor His Father. You can have pseudo-faith and not know the Father. You can have pseudo-faith and not know Jesus. You can have done all the things, said all the prayers, kept all the rules... And not know Jesus. So herein lies a warning for us in this dream that has already been dreamed. But I want you to notice something else in the text this morning in an overarching way. And look for this. Though error is persistent and unyielding in its attack, the truth never changes. Jesus is not diminished. In fact, it only gives Jesus yet another opportunity to expound upon the truth. Don't grow weary because error proliferates. It will in this fallen world. Rather rejoice that everywhere there's error, there's an opportunity for Jesus to be proclaimed. There is an area for us to become more like Christ. There's an area where where Christ may, may be magnified where he is not currently magnified. And so this morning, I want us to understand several points that need to be understood in order to grasp the response of Jesus demonstrating yet again, I know, demonstrating yet again 
that he is indeed God. He is God, a very God. Come down to us, taking upon himself our humanity, losing nothing but taking on what is human in the truest sense, so that he might be our Savior. Number one this morning in verse 13, I'd like you to understand the accusation that is being made. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The Pharisees here are not just merely giving some sort of cultural commentary about what they believed about Jesus. Remember, in verse 20 reminds us that these words are being spoken in the treasury of the temple. He is in the place of official religion. He is in the place of official legal matters when it comes to all things religious in Israel. What they are doing is making a formal and legal indictment. They're not just saying to Jesus, we think you're wrong. They are saying to Jesus, you are wrong in such a a judicial and legal sense that you deserve death for blasphemy. It's one thing to tell a criminal on the street, hey, you're wrong for doing that. It's another thing entirely to tell the criminal in the courthouse before a judge, you were wrong. There is a weight to what is transpiring here. And the weight is that they are seeking a legal indictment for this crime and the sin of blasphemy. And they will seek to discredit Jesus by any means possible. Any means possible. That this is how depravity works. It doesn't come with its own brand new truth that no one's ever heard before. It comes with twisted truth that sounds familiar, yet is a million miles off its target. Remember when Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden? He didn't come with blatantly heretical statements that were meant to contradict everything that God says. Satan comes very craftily and he says, has God said, and then he begins to take words that were spoken and twist them. That's how error works. You just start to play with things. You can even be very pious and very religious but very wrong. You see, they're taking Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Jesus says, I know what you're doing. You're playing the legal game. You're taking even the word that I, as God, have written, and you are twisting it to be used against me. But you're wrong. I don't care how right you think you are. You're wrong. Just because you want it to be true doesn't mean it is true. They have rejected already Jesus' clear declaration that he is God on the basis of his father's witness, John 5, 37. And the father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And there again is another indictment, not upon Jesus, but upon them. You may sound religious, you may use religious sounding texts, you may even quote them exactly, but the way in which you are using them, I can tell you this, you've never one time heard the word of God. What an indictment. What a response. What a warning to us. As we hear the words of Jesus. The reality is that in John chapter 5, Jesus gave them no less than five witnesses. Deuteronomy, the law, called for two or maybe three. Jesus gives five. He says, the scriptures testify about me. The father testifies about me. John the Baptist testified about me. My own works testify about me. And if that's not enough, Moses who wrote the law testified about me. How's that, guys? Five and oh. You've got nothing. I've 
Not everything. This indictment for blasphemy is going nowhere. Jesus has accurately diagnosed the problem, hasn't he? It isn't the absence of valid truth. It is the absence of God working, saving faith in them. They have no faith. God has not worked in them. God does not work that type of a response. God does not work that type of error. John 5.38, Jesus is even stronger. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. How do I know the Father's not at work in you? Because you're rejecting the words of Jesus himself. You know, we could say the same is true. Because there is a, a very small way of thinking, and, and I haven't heard it much recently, but you've all heard it, and it goes the opposite way as well. Well, I only believe the, the, the words that are in red. Right? Have you heard that? Rest of the Bible? Nah. No, no, it goes both ways. But what the Father and the Son speak are true. All of Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And Jesus is saying, you don't know my Father because you don't know me. And you don't know me because you don't listen to the words that he sent me to proclaim to you. I am simply his messenger. Although I am also God. Jesus will increasingly and more clearly make this clear to them in in no uncertain terms. But he will say, not only do you not have the truth abiding in you, but you are instead, and here's the reality, brothers and sisters, there's no neutrality. You are either full of truth or you are full of lies. Jesus will go on to say, not only do you not know the Father, And you are not known by the Father in a saving way, but you are of your Father, the devil. You are filled with Satan and Satan's lies. That is all he is capable of is lying, and you are his favorite child. Because you are most like him. What a pointed message Jesus delivers as he takes aim at the heart of these depraved and fallen men who refuse in, 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 in uh, clear defiance of evidence that he is God. They refuse to recognize him as God. Why is that the case? Because God's not working in them. These are men who would tell you all along that, that they are God's people. That they are the people whom God is working in and through. And they are not. It's often the case with religious yet barren and lost people. They think they do the work of God. And God is not at all in them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. Therefore I make known to you. That no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. Ouch, what did they just say in John 8? You're accursed, condemned under the law. You have just accused Jesus of being accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. If you are here this morning and you believe Jesus is who he says he is, You do so because the Holy Spirit has enabled you, enlightened you, and convinced you to say that. Not your brilliance, not your academic knowledge, but by the Holy Spirit. So it becomes very clear. These are not people in whom God is at work because they are coming up with the entirely wrong conclusion. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, brothers and sisters, and this is where our hearts grieve, and this is where we should humbly before the Lord say, Lord, may this never be true of me. Keep me from this, that I would resort to lies. Lies that are inherent in every fallen individual who lives under the control of the father of lies, Satan himself. And that is every one of us. When we are born, 
We are all born, not with God as our father, but with Satan as our father. God may be our creator, but he is not our father. Not in our natural state. It is only by a work of the Spirit that he becomes our father. Grants us the faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Now that is the indictment. That is understanding the accusation being made. Now I want you to notice the response. So number two, understand the source now that Jesus appeals to. This is what one commentator referred to as a forensic response. Okay, you're going to play legal, I'll play legal. You think you've pulled the trump card? I'm going to pull two. I am going to give you two reasons why you are wrong that are undeniable proofs. Let's go to the source. The debate continues. Jesus appeals not only to his father, but he appeals to his own eternal self-existent witness. Can you do that? Jesus answered, verse 14, and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. Uh, Hey guys, could you, uh, were you there before the world was made? I was. Did everything that you see and the means by which you see it, light, which I am the light of the world, I I spoke that into existence. What did you do for that? Were you there when it happened? No, you were not, but, but I have a witness. If I testify by myself, that testimony is true. Why? I was there. I know where I came from. And that is not to say Jesus came from a created word. No, he is referring to his eternal self-existence. Amazing to think about. Think about it in these terms. The, 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 the eternal self-existent God that we talked about on Wednesday night, the the glorious self-existence and independence of God apart from everything else, so big, so lofty, has now come to us. That, That seems like an impossible chasm, doesn't it? And he's offered the gospel that is unbelievably complex because it centers on him and yet is so simple a child can understand it. Does that not say Jesus came to save? That he can marry those two things perfectly, harmoniously, without contradiction. Oh my goodness. These poor Pharisees, they're not only wrong, which is frustrating, they're lost, which is heartbreaking. Standing before them is the eternal I am. As he just referenced in verse 12, I am, and then gives the predicate statement, the light. The light that I spoke into existence. I was there before. Now, no doubt some of these Pharisees, and maybe some of you even this morning, are keen to find holes in minutia and things that are said. And you say, ah, but you've said before. In John chapter 5 and verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And now you're saying if you do testify alone, your testimony is true. Which is it, Jesus? Which is it? And the answer is that Jesus gives here in this exchange that yes, my father still testifies about me, but I'm here to tell you. I could stand before you and testify about myself alone, and it would be equally true. How is that? In chapter 5, Jesus is, in, uh, he is highlighting and emphasizing the aspect of his dependence upon the Father. In other words, that he's not a renegade. He's not just come to earth to do his own thing, you know, to create a new movement, to create and give some new God. But here in chapter 8, he is demonstrating that, yes, he is dependent on his father, and he and his father are one. And although he is dependent, and while he is dependent upon the father, he is also a distinct person within the Trinity that has all of the subsistence 
and all of the attributes and all of the personhood of God himself. So the answer is yes and yes. Dependent on the Father, but independent, where as God, I can make my own declaration of truth, and you are obligated to believe it. Jesus doesn't ask anyone if they will believe anything. He tells them to believe it. You are obligated to believe it. That's why the gospel is not an invitation. It is a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not, would you? Jesus doesn't go to the Pharisees and say, is this okay with you guys? If I say it this way, does this work? No, I am He, I, and my Father are one. I am God in the flesh. Yes, my Father testifies about it, but so do I. I know where I came from. I always have been, am, and always will be. Jesus is not just referring to a location. I know where I've come from. He's not referring to his address in heaven. He's referring to his eternal Trinitarian subsistence and if you weren't here on Wednesday night you probably don't understand why I'm using the word subsistence instead of existence the word existence means to bring into being God was never brought into being he sub out of himself has always been existence therefore he subsists he does not exist because he was not created he is the word the very revelation of God eternal, sent in flesh to reveal what cannot be otherwise known unless it is revealed to them. And here it is, revealed to them, but heartbreakingly they reject it. John 1.11, he came unto his own, his own people, and his own received him not. That God from all eternity, the God of all creation, He came to be known. But in their depravity and in their sin, they respond rather to the father of lies rather than the father of truth. Understand the criteria now, verse 15. Jesus says, here's why you don't understand. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. If you were to say at this point in verse 15, oh, now Jesus is indicting them, you'd be right. Jesus now turns the debate on its head and issues an indictment of his own. And here is the indictment that you are trying to reason out. And you are trying to believe. And you are trying to understand by the limited and fallen expressions of a finite mind. You are judging according to the flesh. Now, let me just point this out, okay? The Apostle Paul often uses the term flesh to denote uh, negativity, to denote the sinful part of our humanity. That is not how John most often uses the term flesh. When John uses flesh, he's referring to... This, flesh and blood, skin and bones, existence, humanly speaking. He's not referring to the sinful tendencies that Paul, and by the way, neither one are wrong. You can use the word to communicate either context determines its meaning. John is saying you are judging according to the flesh. Now, is there sin wrapped up in this? Oh, most definitely. But what, John, what Jesus is communicating here and John records is that you are trying to understand heavenly truths by earthly means. You are trying to please God by fallen human endeavors. The flesh, that is this earthly limited body that we all live in. No, I, I, listen, I know some pretty smart people. Some of you fall in that category. All of you are smarter than me. But I know some pretty smart people. Now, I can work hard to try to understand things. But but, but, but frankly, I know know and I've met some people that are just absolutely, from a human perspective, 
brilliant. Probably some of the smartest people on the planet. But as smart as they are, and as hard as they've worked to understand what they understand and know, they are still incapable of knowing God by human means. They can't do it. Because heavenly truth cannot be known or discerned by earthly means alone. That doesn't mean we don't have a thinking faith. We do. But it means that human logic and human reason cannot by themselves know who God is. And that's Jesus' indictment. Listen, guys, you're starting with the wrong criteria for knowing me. You're trying to do this in your own strength. James Renahan writes this. If we employ human categories to describe God, how many of you do that? Well, all of us. We don't have any other heavenly language or words that we can use to describe God, right? So we do the best we can with what we've got. But he goes on and he says this. If we employ human categories to describe God, we must seek to remove from them all earthly limitations and instead make them as glorious as possible. To put it another way, it is inappropriate to reason from humanity to God. Which is exactly what Jesus says they're doing. You can't start here and get here. This must come to you so that you in turn can go back to this. So lay aside your earthly limited understanding of who God is. Your expectations of the Messiah. Understand this Pharisees. Understand this. Human being in 2024, the criteria to understand and believe God must come from God. And you are not hearing from God in John, 5, or in John 8, verse 15. You are hearing from your own flesh. How do we know they're hearing from their own flesh? Because it denies the word from God. The word has come. It's not like God is playing hard to get. That the word has been fully revealed, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning Jesus, he has explained him. And yet here he is explaining God and they're not listening. I gave you the word to believe. I gave you the word to understand. They're not believing. Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. In these last days he, meaning God, has spoken to us in his son or literally in one who is son. That's his nature. Whom he appointed as heir of all things. Through whom also he made the world. And he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature that's who's standing before you and you want to use your intellect how sad and how foolish we must never attempt to reason out the person of christ or any spiritual matter any spiritual matter from a human vantage point well i think and I feel in my belief that's dangerous. Let it be from God. Spiritual truth requires spiritual discernment, spiritual dependence that only can come from God himself. Jesus then is not simply the best interpreter of himself. He is the only interpreter of himself. Did you hear that? He's not simply the best option. He's the only option. Jesus is not uncomfortable with using that language. God alone can interpret God, and that is what they are rejecting here. Notice how Jesus ends verse 15. I am not judging anyone. Oh, good. So they're okay. They can just believe whatever they want. Not what it means. Jesus is saying, I am not judging according to the flesh like you. 
This has nothing to do with that sort of judgment, which leads us into verse 16, where we need to understand the prerogative of Jesus to be able to say this. While Jesus did say that he has not come to judge in a final eschatological end of time sort of way at this time, that does not mean Jesus is not a judge or that Jesus is not judging. He is and he is. But he is not doing so from human wisdom. Does that make sense? He's not doing what they're doing, in other words. I'm not judging anyone like you are. Rather, my judgment is true. My judgment is from heaven. You, no human can claim that sort of status. And so in John three seventeen, Jesus says this. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the eschatological, the very end of time. When Jesus has come now, he's come to save. When he returns, he'll judge all those who did not believe. Right? But that does not mean, again, that he's not a judge now. Why is that the case? Let's just, let's, let's just grab hold very quickly this morning, very quickly, little rabbit trail, so hang on. But let's ask ourselves a question and come up with a, a rock-solid answer of why does it appear that Jesus is contradicting himself, number one, and number two, how can Jesus... Be a judge if he's a savior. How can he be judgmental? Well, Jesus can never be at any point something that he is not at any other time. In other words, if Jesus is going to be a judge in the end, Jesus is a judge now. Because he can't change, he's God. He's the immutable. I am the Lord. I change not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever he was, he is, and he will be. That means he sits in judgment upon error. He is not destroying it right now like he will as the righteous judge. But that does not mean that Jesus and Christianity and the Bible are what the world would say judgment-free or planet fitness would say judgment-free zone, right? No judgment here. No, there is. But not in a cruel sort of way, in a loving sort of way to tell you your car is headed without brakes to a cliff. Turn before it's too late. Turn to Christ, whose judgment is always rendered true. Jesus, John 9, 39, for judgment I came into this world. I came to judge. I came to separate truth from error. So that you might know the truth and the truth might make you free. John 12, 48 and 49. He who rejects me and does not receive my saying has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. When did Jesus speak the word? Now? And so it is acting in judgment upon us. But again, not judgment now to condemn. There is still time to to have God's judgment in Jesus work its saving miracle in us that it would turn us from death to life. And that our lives would show not the, the flavor and the savor of death, but life like Paul speaks of. That doesn't happen if Jesus is not the truth. And the truth means you must point out at times what is wrong and in error. Jesus appeals to his role rather than rejects his role as a judge. And that is rooted in two things. Number one, Jesus is truth. It's not that Jesus comes and he preaches truth. He is truth. That's different. If you come and you only proclaim truth, that means you have the capability of proclaiming what else? Error. But when you are truth and you speak out of what you are, it is all truth all the time. Jesus, you know what? I hope your mind was going here. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth. He and the Father are one. 
James 1.17 tells us that God is described as giving all perfect and good things. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That which is true. That which is revealing. And Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. Perfect unity. Perfect deity. Perfect truth. Every time. Fifth, understand the fulfillment of this, verses 17 and 18. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. You see, they are playing the legal game with him. What they are unaware of is that they are dealing with, with the fulfillment of the very law they are trying to use against him. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to fulfill that. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. I am the fulfillment of the law. Listen, dear Christian. Satan will often and always come and buffet you and remind you that you are a lawbreaker. You have never at one moment in your life ever kept the law. Never. And when you offend in one point, James 2.10, you have offended the entire law. You've broken it all. You've never kept the law. And one of the the sad, uh, really anemic things that we've done to Jesus in modern Christianity is that we have neglected to tell the good news that where we broke the law, Jesus came and kept all the law for us, volitionally, by His will. He didn't just come passively and live like, Hey, I'm God, I can't sin. No, He came as a human, tempted in every point like we were, yet by perfect active obedience, never sinned. That's what God requires of you. You didn't do it. Jesus did it for you. That's a glorious thing. So so, so don't just start your gospel understanding at the cross. Go way back to who he is. He is God, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, obedient life all the way down to how he deals with this legal matter. Your law requires two witnesses. I'm bringing two. I testify And my father testifies, told you I came to keep the law. I told you that my life is perfect so much in every way that even here in the way I'm handling this legal matter, I have fulfilled it to the jot and tittle. No holes can be poked in my defense. I am the fulfillment of the law, not a renegade son. I am the perfection and holiness of God, fulfilling every single demand of the law. A law that I myself wrote. As God, those are my words. And I've kept them. Also not a hypocrite. I didn't say one thing and do another. I fulfilled the law. So what's the problem? Verse 19. Understand the problem. Verse 19. Okay, Jesus. Where is your father? Now remember, this is not the crowd in Capernaum who probably, most of them not far from where Jesus had grown up, knew of Joseph. This is in Jerusalem. Probably no knowledge of his earthly father, Joseph, who had adopted him. So they ask him, where is your father? Go ahead and bring your father. Let your father. And they're expecting, again, an earthly father to walk out. Jesus had done that. He'd be no better than a cult leader like Jim Jones. We'll handle this in a human matter, in a human way. 
Here's my father. He's going to tell you everything. Yeah, you guys described this or discussed this beforehand. You told him what to say when he got no. Jesus says, you want me to call my father? You don't even know who he is. Because if you did, you'd know you can't call him. He doesn't show up like you want him to. By your fleshly means, you have falsely accused me and you have blasphemed the God whom you claim to know and love and worship. I know there's a novel concept, isn't it? That spirituality and worship can actually be blasphemous. But have all the trappings of being right. Because we know how to do it. It's the heart. It's the belief. It's, it, it, it is the, the trust in all that Christ has said. Jesus says, where is my father? <laughs> you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. The height of everything you have sought not to do, you've done. You've blasphemed. It's a fleshly oriented and derived question. Where is your father? You want me to produce a man? I don't produce a man. If you knew me, you'd know that my father is not embodied. He is spirit. And he's truth. One commentator refers to this as double blasphemy. Denying Jesus, but also targeting the father as nothing more than a mortal man. That's pretty serious. You know, we don't take things like that very serious in our culture, do we? You can sort of play fast and loose with the Bible. You can play fast and loose with the gospel. You can play fast and loose with truth. And nobody really gets worked up over that. But I'm reminded of this past week. I talked with a a good friend of mine who, who does quite a bit of ministry in, the, in, in Islamic contexts. And recently he returned from a trip training pastors in a very, very dangerous area of the world. And he said we were outside eating at a, on a sidewalk cafe and this guy rides up on a motorcycle and he starts yelling that, you know, that, that, that we are apostates and that this, that, and the other, and you Christians. He said, he walks up to the table and he sits down with us. And he says, the pastor who, who had me, was hosting me there, says, this guy has ties to and is part of one of the, the most dangerous extremist Islamic groups in our country. And this, he said, this guy's animated and he's throwing his hands up. He said, he finally gets disgusted. He gets back on his little motorcycle, moped thing and drives off. And the pastor said, all of it would have taken is for him to yell blasphemy one time and we would have died. They take it that seriously to blaspheme God. And yet, how tragic it is that these men actually do blaspheme God. How tragic it is that we are so sloppy in our handling of Jesus and the truth and the gospel so many times that that we end up where these people do functionally, even though we may not think it intellectually. But it in no way deters Jesus. Jesus graciously says to them, you don't know me, you don't know my father. Is that ungracious to tell somebody that? Is that ungracious to say, you know, to believe what you say you believe, you can't be a Christian. To to, to believe and treat Jesus the way you do, you don't have eternal life. I love you enough to tell you that. Because it's not just open for every individual interpretation. You don't know me. You don't know my Father. Not only are you wrong about Jesus, you're wrong about the Father. In fact, the one that they think they are serving is none other than Satan in disguise. 
the reality is there are going to be far too many people who leave this world and enter the next looking for a God they thought they served only to find Satan laughing at the masterful deception that he pulled over on them. Verse 44, Jesus speaks even more strongly. You are, not of, your, you, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, and you are his children. Jesus is too true and too kind to pretend like they're just a little different. That they see things and they're basically the same, but, you know, let bygones be bygones. As long as they're sincere now, that would make him a liar as well. It would only serve to further damn those who believed the lie that got them into the deception in the first place. It would just cement them. So Jesus very clearly says the truth. I am the Son of God. I am God. And to know me is to know the Father. And then one last understanding I want you to grasp, and it's found in verse 20. Here's the implication of the fact that I am God. And one final proof For this passage anyway. These words he spoke in the treasury. He is in the very epicenter of pharisaical religion. He is in their capital building if you will. He is at the seat of power. He he is where uh, it would be most dangerous to be. They are all around him. They have the ability, as those Middle Eastern emotive responses tend to be, to gen up a crowd and to crucify him on the spot. That's where he says these things. He's not behind a keyboard typing it under an anonymous name. He's face to face in a dangerous place, speaking the truth. And yet notice What the text says, he taught in the temple and no one seized him. Because his hour had not yet come. Now remind yourself for a moment, have they tried? Oh, they've tried. It wasn't that long ago that the temple guards were ordered to arrest Jesus and to bring him in and to finish him, and they didn't show up with Jesus. And were the Pharisees really happy about that? They're livid. Every attempt to seize Jesus, to silence Jesus, has failed despite their best efforts. And by the way, There's no other way to explain that Jesus has not been taken and seized except that he is God. He's written the story and it's not time in the story for him to die yet. That's why you haven't seized me. It isn't for lack of ability. It isn't for lack of trying. You haven't because you can't. I'm right here in the middle of you. I'm right in your temple. I'm right where all the goings on go on. And I'm still here. And I will be here until I lay my life down. No man takes it. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I will take it up again. For the salvation of sinners like them. That's the depth of sin and depravity and deception. That's where all of us end up if God does not move towards us. Oh, it's easy. You read this text and you just like, you, you want to kind of surround Jesus and like, God, Jesus, we'll give him what for for you. The reality is, but for the grace of God, we would have been there with him. Not believing, accusing, casting dispersion, 
so right in our own eyes, yet so absolutely We need God to open our eyes just as he is about to do for the blind man in John chapter 9. Just like he's done for everyone who's believed throughout history. We believe because he opened our eyes. Our testimony really is that of John Newton. We are the wretch. We once were blind. Now we see. Or as the blind man says in John 9, whether this man is a sinner or not, I don't know. But this I know. I once was blind, but now I see. Is your denial of Jesus this morning a barb in your conscience? Is something telling you you're not right? Something convicting you? Don't ignore that. Humble yourself. Bow yourself low before Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe what he has said. Know the truth. Know Jesus himself and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of revealing your son to us, of spanning the gulf between God and men. Thank you for granting faith where there was only unbelief in the past. Bringing us to this this glorious position that we know you and your son whom you have sent. We do not take for granted, Father, the grace, the extravagant, extravagant grace that has been shown to us even by what we know to be true. It's not from us. It's not within us. It is from you. Father, keep us always dependent upon you for everything that we know. Father, if there's one here this morning who has not trusted Christ, they do not believe that he is the Son of God given for them. Make today the day that you open their eyes, please, and grant them faith to believe. To call out to the Lord Jesus. You are the son of God. Come to save sinners like me. Save me Lord. As you promised you would. To all who believe. God be glorified now through your word. Seal it into our hearts. Cause us to meditate upon it and rejoice in it. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.